Blog Talk Radio. It comes, but once a year, each tick of the clock, the time draws near, where there'll be hope for every team in the National Football League. Kuiper and Box Bomb pave the way, predicting the names Kamish would say. Drastic's watching every day. Who are the prospects for the play? Galaxy Box and Trade. From Mobile to Indeed, it's played seven rounds of fun. Whether it's this or relevant or number one, it's the countdown to the NFL Draft. Welcome to the DC Podcast, brought to you by DraftCountdown.com. My name is Scott Wright, and today I'm going to be joined with guest Kyle Krabs from NDT Scouting. You can check out his website at NDTScouting.com. You can also follow him on Twitter at NDT Scouting. Kyle, welcome back to the show. Scott, thanks, man. I remember this show last year was one of the favorite spots that I did, so I'm looking forward to this. Well, that's excellent. I'm looking forward to this as well. I think it's going to be a fun discussion, and, and we're going to focus on the underclassmen in this episode, and of course, there's a lot of them. I think the, the entire number came out to about 103. Uh, I think the NFL said 95, but that didn't include players that graduated but still had eligibility remaining, so either way, about 100 underclassmen declared for the 2017 NFL draft, and uh, not really feasible to go through and talk about every single one, so what we're going to do is we're going to kind of rotate, take turns, uh, bringing up players or topics uh, uh, that kind of interest us when it comes to the underclassmen. So uh, I'll kick us off here, Kyle, and, you know, I- I'm going to start with the running backs because that's the position where he had a bunch of them come out. Uh, I think almost 20% of this underclassmen class was comprised of running backs alone. And, of course, at the top we're going to have Leonard Fournette from LSU and then Dalvin Cook from Florida State. But then I think that's where the debate's going to begin. Who's going to be running back three, four, five? So I guess my question to you is, who, which running backs do you have in that second tier of running backs behind Fournette and Cook? And uh, is there somebody that kind of stands out for, for that number three spot for you at this point? Sure. I mean, stylistically, there's a lot of variation uh, with the running back class in general, yeah. and especially with the underclassmen that have made the decision to enter the draft. A few names that come to mind for me uh, would include Christian McCaffrey, Deonta Foreman from Texas, uh, and those two stylistically are are very different style of runners. Uh, McCaffrey is very, very patient. I don't think he gets quite enough credit for just uh, how well he allows things to develop at the line of scrimmage. And then Deonta Foreman, who is smooth, but he's very much uh, a powerful runner with good leg drive and He's got a nice burst when he gets into the open field. Uh, I know uh, we did get a little love from Mike Mayock for Alvin Kamara as well, who I don't think, as far as on-the-field ability, he's too far off the pace of those guys either. I do think, um, as you alluded to, with just how deep the class is, you may get teams in in the first round that are eager to grab that blue-chip style, whether they want the, the power of Fournette or the creativity and lateral agility of Dalvin Cook. Uh, but after that, I think it's going to be really hard for teams in the 20s uh, to get on board with a running back with just how stacked this class is behind them. But if you had to pick, uh, if you were asking me to pick right now who would be the third behind those two, I would probably actually lean McCaffrey. 
Yeah, and I agree with what you said about the kind of the diversity of the skill sets of the other running backs in this class. There's a little something for everybody. It might just come down to what type of player are you looking for. And you mentioned two guys, Dante Foreman and Christian McCaffrey, are kind of polar opposites. And the wild card in the running back situation is going to be Joe Mixon from Oklahoma, who came out as a redshirt sophomore. Probably just talent alone takes the off-the-field concerns out of the equation. He's probably at, at – if not running back three, probably running back four in this draft and going in the top 50 overall. And uh, It's going to be interesting to see where he comes off the board. What are your thoughts on Mixon? Because I know there's a lot of talk, oh, he might not get drafted because of the character concerns and all this, but I just think back. Look at Frank Clark still wet in the second round, and at the end of the day, if you're talented enough, teams are going to – the more talented you are, the more leeway you're going to get. And Joe Mixon's pretty talented, and uh, I kind of compare him – talent-wise coming out of school to Jeremy Hill, who I thought was a first-round runner. He fell to the second round because of the character concerns. I still think Joe Mixon's going to go on the second day when all is said and done, whether it be round two, round three. What's your kind of thought on Joe Mixon as a talent, and uh, how much do you think the character concerns will ultimately affect him on draft day? Yeah, this is going to be a a really interesting study on um, the NFL and their – Self-awareness, I guess, would be a way to put it as far as how they covet this guy. Uh, they make no bones about it. The incident in question was a very ugly, inexcusable incident. Uh, but it did happen two years ago, you know. So there, there has been some space in between this, and uh, um, he should be given the opportunity to uh, have a second chance and make amends. Gift uh, As far as his gifts on the field, Know that as you mentioned, there's no doubt this is at the absolute worst uh, a top five running back in this class, which says quite a bit because this running back class is absolutely loaded. Um, you still still saw in the past couple of years uh, a couple of prospects uh, with some pretty significant red tape that you know in some cases like the uh, Laramie Tunsil incident last year. Um, it, it shook teams a little bit. It, it confused, you know, the Baltimore Ravens were apparently poised to pick it before this, this information came out and they let it go. And uh, the other one that stands out is, uh, well, Collins, who ha- had an investigation as far as pretty significant, I, I believe it was a, a death, and he was being investigated in something along those lines, and he ended up going undrafted. So, You've seen it on both ends of the spectrum where Tunsil ended up sliding like seven picks and then Collins went undrafted. So this incident, with it being documented and the state of affairs in American culture right now, this is a very sensitive subject. So I would not be surprised to see him fall somewhere in the middle, probably uh, late day two, early day three. I think early day three would be a home run as far as uh, it's – as you get deeper down into the rounds, the investment in the capital that you're compromising is notably less. Yeah, and the one thing I think, like you said, that Mixon definitely has working in his favor is the, the time between the incidents. Uh, whereas a couple of examples you mentioned, Laramie Tunsil and Lyle Collins, both of those things happened really close to the draft, and teams didn't really have much time to go back and do their due diligence and, and kind of get comfortable with the, situa- with the situation. Whereas with Joe Mixon, providing nothing new pops up in the next few months, um, they kind of know all the facts and, and they can 
get wrap their head around it and make a decision on, on where they want to make that investment. And, and I'm sure there are absolutely some teams in the league that wouldn't take him with the last pick of the seventh round, but all it takes is one, as we know, and I just think somebody's going to give him the benefit of the doubt earlier than most expect. Uh, before we move on, I just want to mention one other player since we're on the Oklahoma running back topic. I'm kind of a fan of Samaje Pirine uh, from Oklahoma, who was the more productive runner uh, of the two there at, at, over his career for the Sooners. And uh, don't get me wrong, I think he's a mid-round type player. I think he's an early to mid-day three type of value. But if I were waiting on a running back until the third day, I think he's one of the guys I'd be targeting. Not only the production, but he has such a unique body type. He's 5'10", 235. He's like a bowling ball. And and I don't know about you, but I think there's something to be said for these guys who are kind of physical freaks. I think back to Maurice Jones-Drew. I think of Brandon Williams, the defensive lineman from uh, the Baltimore Ravens now, back when he was coming out of college. I remember seeing him at the Senior Bowl and thinking, I've never seen a human being like Brandon Williams. And I think Samaj P. Ryan fits in that category to a certain degree. He's kind of like a unicorn. And uh, I'm a fan of his. Uh, it, it, are you a fan of P. Ryan, or what day three running back would you be targeting if you were uh, uh, looking for value in that range? Yeah, I really like the Jones-Drew reference with him. Uh, just his center of gravity, right? Uh, his foot quickness is not necessarily on the top end of the, the scale. It, when you compare him to guys like Kamara and McCaffrey and Dalvin Cook, uh, he's not built that way, but because of his center of gravity and how low built to the ground he is, uh, he's a trip because he can cut quickly. He, he can, gets a, a full head of steam very suddenly when he gets momentum in the pad square to the line of scrimmage. Uh, so I, I think you're right on the money there as far as uh, the valuation of him, as far as limited upside, and, and he doesn't uh, create a lot of yardage in space on his own but he'll run through you. He will get tough yards. He can make some nice one-cut runs when he's working laterally behind the line of scrimmage. And uh, I've seen him catch the ball pretty cleanly with his hands too. So uh, checks a lot of boxes, just doesn't necessarily have uh, the the elite physical skill set to to pair with the production that he's put on the field so far. But I, I do like P. Ryan quite a bit. Any other running backs that you're a fan of on day three that you see as a good value? Yeah, I mean, this this was hard. I was just talking with my colleague at NDT Scouting, Joe Marino, about the running back class. And on average, you get, uh, I believe it's 19 or 21 running backs that get drafted a year. And yep. we're putting together our watch list for this year. And we got 24, and we're rolling like eight deep behind it with guys that we're trying to like, it's just ridiculous. The number of players there are. So there's a lot of really nice uh, talent that's going to be available on day three. Would not be surprised to see some names that you would expect and associate with day two players end up going on day three with just how deep the class is. But I think a a sleeper, a guy that I know uh, had limited touches and is, is very much under the radar as an underclassman declaration, uh, is Joe Yearby from Miami. I think he's a really – he reminds me somewhat of what Lamar Miller was like when he was at Miami as far as his running style and his ability to create and stop and start and cut. Uh, he fell behind Mark Walton on the depth chart, and uh, Walton was the feature back in, in Coach Rick's first year down there in Miami. But uh, Yearby has a nice skill set. He's got good balance, good vision. So uh, a, a fun name to kind of put a star next to and see if he ends up getting the trigger pulled on him because I think he should. 
Yeah, and a guy who the year before ran for over 1,000 yards. He showed he could catch the ball. Uh, just, as you said, lost playing time this past year and isn't exactly coming out while, and striking while the iron is hot. So we talked a lot about, about running backs. Uh, why don't you bring up a topic? What's something that interests you with these underclassmen? Uh, let's talk about this corner class. Uh, this corner class is a trip. Uh, the defensive backfield in general is loaded, but uh, I, I'm looking at the corners in general, and uh, this is a really good senior class that's supplemented with really strong underclassmen with the, the Florida corners and the Ohio State corners. And uh, my personal favorite is Washington's uh, Sidney Jones, who has a really, really nice combination of length, ball skills, anticipation, a willingness to step up to the line of scrimmage and play and run support and prevent runs from turning the corner on him. And uh, he, he's got really nice foot quickness. And that, for me, is one of those, those must-have traits for a corner is you got to have the feet uh, to be able to plant and transition if you're playing in zone with your eyes in the backfield or be able to transition and, and flip your hips and get in the hip pocket and, and play in phase with receivers down the field. So Sidney Jones, for me, uh, I got around to his tape late in the year, uh, probably mid-December, and when I watched him, I said, holy cow, this is CB1, there's no doubt about it. Yeah, I'm with you on this cover class. It's really impressive, and, and not just the underclassmen, but the senior class alone, cornerback was one of the, the deepest positions. We had a lot of underclassmen decide to go back for another year, so we had all these uh, impressive upperclassmen, and then basically all of the top underclassmen came out as well, and for me, the guy that kind of stands out that I'm a big fan of is Marlon Humphrey from Alabama, and he's a redshirt sophomore. He's still a little rough around the edges, but I just think he has one of the better all-around skill sets of a corner coming out in maybe a number of years, and if he maximizes his potential, I think he has a chance to be a true shutdown corner, and he can do everything. He's got the size, he's got the range and playmaking ability and coverage, he's not afraid to hit. Um, I'm a big fan of Marlon Humphrey, so he's probably either going to be my cornerback one or cornerback two, but I think this is what we're going to see. You like Sidney Jones, there's going to be a lot of debate. I know there's a lot of fans out there of Marshawn Lattimore from Ohio State. Who do you think will be the first corner off the board? Do you think a favorite has emerged yet, or do you think it's going to all just come down to this pre-draft process with two, three guys battling it out? Well, I think that, and that's my favorite thing about the draft, process in general is, is I'm looking at the scope through differential um, style of the game, right? And you're evaluating through uh, what you believe is, is the most important things to have at that position. And each of the, and every one of the 32 teams is doing the exact same thing where they have their own systemic uh, requirements for, yeah. for a corner, for example, in this situation. And uh, I think a team like maybe Tennessee – it might be a good candidate to see if they really fall in love with the corner. I personally think they should go after Jamal Adams, the safety from LSU. Uh, but in a situation like that, uh, you could have probably five or six different corners in this class that are CB1 for different teams in the NFL. So the, the, when you're looking at the board and how it's falling and trying to determine, okay, who are the teams that need a corner and where's the realistic time to start seeing it go? Um, I think Quincy Wilson has a chance. I think Sidney Jones has a chance. Uh, Marlon Humphrey certainly has a nose for the football. He knows how to find it. Uh, so so it, it depends on how comfortable they are with uh, the polished side of things versus if they want to uh, take the raw skill set and try and work it and mold it on their own. But I could really see as many as five different corners potentially being the top corner in the class. 
And it's going to be interesting to see where that run starts, as you alluded to, maybe as early as the right. Tennessee Titans and in the top five overall. But I wouldn't also wouldn't be surprised if teams looked at the entire landscape of the draft and said, boy, there, we like this corner, but there's a lot of good corners that we like, and, and I, we can get a good one in the second round, whereas we might not be able to get the impact pass rusher we want or the quarterback we want or et cetera. You know, you mentioned uh, you mentioned the Tennessee Titans, too, and I think they're going to have a big decision to make at number five, and, and certainly – they're going to be looking at the defensive backs, whether it be the top corner, whether it be the top safety. But if I'm them at number five, I'm looking really hard at Mike Williams, the wide receiver from Clemson, or just because I think he's kind of head and shoulders above the rest of the wide receiver class. And then I think there's a, a, it drops down to another tier. So I'm not so sure if I'm the Tennessee Titans, if I wouldn't want to grab that top wide receiver there at number five, and then they have another pick later in the middle of the first round where they're still going to be able to get a really good corner, maybe, as you alluded to, the number one corner on their board, depending on how they individually evaluate the, pros- the, the cover guys. Uh, so th- I think that's an interesting thing, too, that teams have to do with, with the draft is not only look who's the best player, but look at the whole landscape. Okay, if we do this here, what's going to be available later? If you were the Tennessee Titans, would you be looking at uh, a Mike Williams? Would you be looking at a corner or safety? Uh, what would be your approach if you were them? Yeah, I, I'm looking for impact players in, in a top five spot. Right? So you, you kind of take inventory on who you have under contract, how long you have those players under control, uh, so I wouldn't even take uh, necessarily like a pass rusher off the table for them if they really love a guy. So I certainly agree wide receiver is, is a position of need for them. Uh, secondary in general, uh, they have Derek Morgan and Brian Arakpo as their uh, pass rushers. But, but if maybe they really fall in love with someone uh, from a pass rushing standpoint, just look for a splash player. Uh, look for a guy that you can plug into the lineup and it's going to immediately make a difference on your roster. I like that they have that flexibility because they also have that second first round pick that they can kind of go back and say, okay, now we want to fill and address that immediate need. If you need a wide receiver, you need a corner, you need a safety, there's options that are going to be there at 18 and realistic options across the board at all those positions. So that ship is really going to give them a ton of flexibility to bounce back and forth and see, hey, maybe we want to roll the dice and see if Corey Davis is there at 18. Now, you mentioned the pass rushers, and, and th- th- that's certainly a, a lot of ground for us to talk about, but the player that I, it's kind of polarizing for me is Derek Barnett from Tennessee, and I'm interested to get your take on him. Now, incredibly productive for three years in the SEC. He broke Reggie White's sack record for the balls. Um, there's, there's no denying the production, and, and I think he's a good player. Uh, I, I just question the upside, and he's being talked about as maybe a top 10 overall pick, and I just don't know that I see a, a player with the ability to be a perennial double-digit sack guy in Derek Barnett. Not the most physically talented guy, adequate across the board in terms of the size, length, athleticism, but 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 maybe uh, average or even a notch below in some regards. Uh, where do you come down on Derek Barnett? Because I know there's some that really love him. They, they see huge things in his future. But when I watched Derek Barnett this past season, names that kept coming to my mind were guys like Dante Fowler, Derek Morgan. I think they're going to be good all-around players. I just question whether they're going to be great. And if I'm going to take a pass rusher in the top ten, I want to get that double-digit stack potential. So uh, what are your thoughts on Derek Barnett? Yeah, uh, if you're trying to sell me on Derek Barnett as a top ten, ten top 15 player, I'm going to have a hard pass on that. Uh, for me, when I watch his film, what stands out immediately is his get-off is good 
because of snap anticipation versus actual quick twitch ability and explosiveness. He has a really innate ability to line up uh, the snap count and get off the ball faster than anybody else, not because he explodes out of his stance, but he just reacts and anticipates the snap with such suddenness that he's frequently hip-to-hip with offensive tackles very early on in their pass sets. And he loves to go to that speed rush where he drops the inside shoulder, turns the corner, and finishes the play by flattening out. He has the strength to play with that leverage, and he has some bendability. I don't think he's an especially dynamic mover as far as his redirection ability or his mobility to tilt and lean from the waist and ankles to to generate that high amount of tilt and, and turn with quickness. But I'm right there with you. I think Derek Morgan, you know, that kind of career trajectory, I think Morgan coming out uh, projected much more favorably as a 4-3 defensive end. And I see that same general uh, feel for Barnett. I know some people, as you alluded to, are are notably higher on him than that. But I I just don't see the movement skills there and the versatility in his rush attack at this point to, to consider him viable of that high of a pick. Now, if you're picking mid-20s, I think that's a home run pick for a team. Uh, if you have either a wide-open spot or you have a guy in the last year of his contract, uh, say somebody like the Miami Dolphins, who, who they have uh, Cameron Wake on one side who, who had a tremendous comeback season after tearing his Achilles, and then on the other side you have someone like Alan Branch who's bounced around to a couple teams for a few years. Uh, that kind of fit, I think, makes a good deal of sense. But if you're, you know, uh, Tennessee Titans or uh, New Orleans Saints or any of those other teams in the top 10, top 12, top 15, I, I just don't think the value's there. Do you see another pass rusher that's worth a top 10 overall pick? I think we can all assume that Miles Garrett from Texas A&M is going to be number one for almost everybody, the presumptive number one overall pick. But who would be your number two edge pass rusher? Is it an underclassman? Is it a senior? Uh, Who would you choose if you were looking for that impact uh, sack artist? If you're asking for for a pure edge guy, and and if we're not including John Allen in this conversation, because I think he could play base 4-3 end for some teams, um, I want to say Carl Lawson from from Auburn because he has some nice hand techniques. He's got good explosiveness, but he also has some medical red tape that's going to be really significant for him to hurdle and get clear because of this, these hip injuries that he's had. Has really laid him up. Durability has been a concern, and uh, I've heard the phrase lately, and I like it quite a bit. Um, your availability is your best ability. So your your ability to stay on the field is essential to your ability to contribute to a team and be an asset. So uh, somebody like Taco Charlton, I think, is a name to really watch as far as a potential sleeper. I had a chance to go to Iowa this year and see Michigan get upset by Iowa, and the scouts that were there had nothing but glowing reviews uh, as they were talking about Charlton throughout the course of the game. He's long switched up, he can bend very effectively. I've seen a number of times he, his pad level is lower than guys that are two, three, four inches shorter than him listed. He's listed 6'6". Six, six. Uh, great tilt. He's a little raw as a rusher and, and in the run defense. He's not all there yet. He gives up his chest sometimes and it makes it difficult to disengage and get clean. But um, 
I, I think if you're looking at pure pass rush upside, he's got an NFL body. The scouts know him. They like him a good amount. So I wouldn't be surprised to see him kind of make a push into the, the mid uh, potential back half of the first round or back half of the first half of the first round. Yeah, the doctors are definitely going to play a role with Lawson, but I think you could definitely make the argument that he has first-round edge pass rush ability. Uh, for me, I, I, Solomon Thomas from Stanford, of course, he had that incredible bowl game. Just looked like uh, he, he played like a number one overall pick if you're going to evaluate just based on that film alone. And if he works out as well as we expect, I think he's going to be in that uh, that defensive end number two mix. Uh, one other defensive end I'd like to that I don't think is getting a lot of attention uh, is Charles Harris from Missouri. Uh, and, and didn't have the huge final campaign in college junior year that we kind of anticipated, but I think he became a little better all-around player, and he, he started to perform better down the stretch. I was really impressed with him the, the year prior, and when it comes to program pedigree, Missouri seems to know what they're doing when it comes to producing NFL defensive linemen, whether it's ends, tackles. Uh, it seems like every year they're sending uh, a high draft pick to the pros, so I think Charles Harris is going to be a really interesting guy late round one, early round two to to kind of keep an eye out for uh, for a pass rusher. Uh, so, so now Solomon Thomas, where are you at on him? Because he's not going to be if you're just looking for pure speed and, and edge pass rusher, he's not necessarily going to be the top guy in that regard. But maybe one of the better all around options at defensive end. What kind of role do you see for him at the next level? Because I think that's what teams are going to have to figure out. Is he a defensive end? Is he a, a outside linebacker? Uh, can you even kick inside and play some defensive tackle in certain situations? What kind of role do you perceive for Solomon Thomas? Yeah, Thomas is going to be an interesting one to see where he ends up uh, landing because, as you mentioned, I think he could play a number of different spots. His body type can go either way. He looks like he can bulk up. Uh, he looks like he could trim down and continue to stay lean and uh, maybe add some more uh, lateral agility and, and add to what is already a really nice first step and get off. Uh, what stands out to me is two things. His length and his power with his hands is just tremendous. Uh, yeah. he, he resets the line of scrimmage as good as anybody in the class. And I think some of his best reps that I've seen have come as a three tech, you know, playing over top of the guard where he anchors very well, uh, his his ability to drop the hips and hold the line of scrimmage is excellent. And um, I would love to see him kind of be a player that uh, maybe like a Justin Tuck style player where you move him up and down the line of scrimmage and you can kick him inside on pass rush if you want to, because as you said, he doesn't have that elite uh, burst and explosiveness off the line uh, to beat deep set offensive tackles in their, their kick slides. But uh He's got great versatility, and that for some team, teams may be seen as a plus and for others as a minus. They might want a guy that wins around the edge. They might want a guy that can play three-tech. But if, if you got a defensive coordinator that loves to move pieces around, I think that's a match made in heaven. All right, we're just going to take a really quick break, and we're going to come back and talk some more underclassmen with Kyle Krabs of NDT Scouting. Be right back. All right, and we're back with Kyle Krabs from NDT Scouting, and we're talking about the underclassmen that declared for the 2017 NFL Draft, and we're just kind of taking turns, bringing up players and topics that interest us when it comes to these underclassmen. So I think it's your turn, Kyle. Uh, what do you want to talk about? Yeah, I've been, I've been sitting on this name for like 15 minutes, so I'm glad I get to kick this out now. Uh, David Njoku from Miami, uh, tight end, 
I think he has uh, the chance to really shoot up draft boards as we get into this process. I know uh, the big draft media has started to catch on a bit. Uh, I noticed him when I was down in Miami this year for Pitt Miami, and he was hard to miss. He, he front-flipped over two people, human beings, into the end zone on a 19-yard catch and run. Uh, he's got two or three plays like that every single game when you turn it on and you just say, holy cow, this guy is a special, special athlete. I think he is uh, the cherry on top to what is a, an unusually deep group of tight ends as well. Pass catchers in general in this draft are, are very full, a lot of potential. Uh, he's big. He's lifted 6'5", 245. He's built like Adonis. I don't think he's got an ounce of body fat on him. He runs very well. He's strong after the catch, and uh, uh, he, he's attacking defenses in a lot of different ways. They've used him in wheel routes. They used him in the middle of the field as a vertical receiver in the flats, moving across the set. Uh, so as a receiver prospect at the tight end position, which is what the NFL has become, uh, he brings quite a bit to the table. And I think if you're not asking him to play with his hand in the dirt 80% of the time and be an inline player, if you're willing to flex him out in the slot and use him out in space. Uh, the, the comparison that I made the other week when I was talking to Joe uh, Marino, my colleague at NDT Scouting, was uh, you, just, you could see some Jimmy Graham in him. So I think he's a very excitable player. Uh, I don't think because O.J. Howard is still that hot name and uh, he's going to continue to be hot because he's coming down to the Senior Bowl, which I'm on my way to now, and uh, he is going to be a favorite this week. Uh, but because O.J. Howard has been such a long, entrenched number one tight end prospect in this class, I think people are still a little slow to pick up on Njoku, but uh, uh, he is certainly one of my favorite prospects this year. Yeah, and Njoku came out as a redshirt sophomore, so that kind of contributed to him uh, sliding under the radar to a certain degree, but average, in his two years, he averaged over 16 yards a catch, so he showed the ability to be that dynamic uh, down-the-field playmaker, and, and, and you mentioned Jimmy Graham. The guy I kind of think of is Vernon Davis, uh, maybe even a little yeah. taller and a little better range than Vernon Davis, but so you're a fan of Joku, obviously, and, and you mentioned it's going to be the debate. Joku or O.J. Howard from Alabama, uh, have you made a decision yet? Or is it still a 1A, 1B type of situation for you? Do you prefer Joku? Uh, personally, right now, I still gave Howard the slight edge, but I think they're both surefire first-round picks. It's just a matter of how high they're going to go. Uh, uh, is Joku one for you? Is Howard one, or is it to be determined? Uh, you, you said it best. It's uh, Howard has the slight edge. Uh, their, their film is extremely comparable. Uh, with the exception of uh, Howard has much more polish as a blocker, both out in space and from an inline position. Uh, so that does give him that slight edge there. And then the way I do my evaluations, I do also factor in game experience and production. And uh, with Njuku being just a redshirt sophomore versus Howard being an entrenched starter at Alabama for, for quite a while now uh, has kind of bumped him. But that gap is very small between the two. But they are certainly in the tier of their own as far as the tight ends this year. Well, let's stay on the subject of tight ends because I think the battle for tight end number three might come down to some underclassmen as well, uh, whether it be Bucky Hodges from Virginia Tech, uh, maybe some seniors, maybe Gerald Everett from South Alabama, uh, 
But what were your thoughts on Adam Shaheen? Have you had a chance to watch him yet? He's an underclassman, came out early out of Ashland, so that rare small school prospect that came out early, but extremely productive, excellent size, huge frame, uh, a better athlete than I think uh, you'd expect from a guy that's that, that's that large. I'm a big fan of Adam Shaheen. I have him as a day-two pick, whether it be the second or third round. Uh, where do you come down to Adam Shaheen if you had a chance to check him out? Man, you know, Joe just talked me into putting him on my watch. Now I'm looking forward to watching him. I know his, his production it. was through the roof. Um, uh, I know he's he, uh, a very athletic style player, and there's a whole bunch of those, as you mentioned, uh, Gerald Everett from South Alabama. Uh, but I think a name that, that we didn't get the chance to bring up yet is uh, the old Miss kid, Evan Ingram. Uh, mm-hmm. I think this is a, a fascinating uh, component of the tight end position as well, because you mentioned Bucky Hodges. Uh, Hodges, I think the next time he puts his hand in the dirt will be the first time. Yeah. <laughs> he, he played just as much flanker as he did slot. Uh, like very Jason Morrow. Yes, exactly like Jason Morrow. Uh, so that, that style of transition is going to be interesting, because I don't see uh, the style of, of the quickness at the top of the routes with Hodges that I do with Evan Ingram. So Evan Ingram's probably the favorite for me to be my tight end three. But then you get into the, the philosophical question, is this a tight end? Yeah. You know, and, and at least Ingram uh, has played some, some H-back, playing off the line of scrimmage, you know, next to the offensive tackle, uh, playing in the slot. Uh, whereas Hodges, you see just as many reps with him on the boundary as you do anywhere else. So these guys, you know, they're, they're tight ends with an asterisk, I suppose. Um, but if you're asking me out of the, the crop that's left from who I've seen, I really like Evan Ingram's tape as just like Njoku, another strictly speaking receiving style of tight end. I'm a fan of Ingram too. And he's a very stylized prospect. Uh, I, I, I think of him as a Jordan Reed, Aaron Hernandez type of player where you're going to yeah. be a little bit creative, but, but boy, is he a mismatch waiting to happen? You can do so much with him if you're creative. And, and I think tight end too, after you get past Howard and Joku, it's going to be like running back where it's beauty in the eye of the beholder. What type of player are you looking for? Do you want somebody who can get the job done as a blocker? If so, then I think you're looking at, at maybe the Shaheens of the world, the Jordan Leggett's of the world. If you're looking for uh, just that kind of that, that wide receiver tight end hybrid, then you're getting to the Hodges, the Everett's, the Ingrams of the world. So I think there's a little bit of everything. And it's so fun to have all this talent in the tight end class because it's been pretty sparse the last, boy, I three years, I bet, even. Uh, this is definitely one of the stronger tight end classes, top to bottom, uh, to come along in a, a long time, and, and not just in day one, but there's going to be depth throughout. So uh, definitely uh, nice to have a, a little bit of a contrast and, and have some talent at tight end this year, a lot of good options. Uh, let's, let's stay on the offensive side of the ball and talk about the Lions, uh, the offensive linemen, because, uh, of course, offensive tackles, uh, historically, I think, is one of the safer positions to take in round one. We've, in recent years, we've been seeing a lot of them go at the top of the draft, top five, top ten overall. Uh, when it comes to senior class, there's a chance we might not have a senior go in the first round as offensive tackle. Maybe you can make a case for Antonio Garcia from Troy if he performs well at the senior bowl. Uh, Forrest Lamb from Western Kentucky I'm a fan of, but he might be more of a guard. So I, I think the first maybe two, three offensive tackles off the board might end up being underclassmen. I guess my question for you is, who's your favorite of the top group, and where do you think the run's going to start? Do you see a top ten overall talent at offensive tackle? Do you think it's going to start mid-round one, late-round one? What's kind of your view of this tackle class, since it's basically the top guys are all underclassmen? 
yeah, I would have a hard time if I'm a team picking in the top 12 to, to justify investing in an offensive tackle in this class. Uh, as far as who the prospects are and who stands out, uh, Cam Robinson has all the traits. It's a question of off the field and consistency with his technique. Uh, I will say, find myself gravitating more towards uh, Ryan Ramchek of, of Wisconsin uh, because he, he plays mean. He's got that offensive tackle style build and uh, really physical and some nice flashes for him being a player that's bounced around a good deal throughout the course of his college career. Uh, he's got a fair amount of polish, which surprised me. I was not expecting to see that out of him. Uh, I would probably lean Ramchek one, Cam Robinson two, and if you're looking for the range, I think the teens is a good place to start investing uh, just because there's so much other talent that I wouldn't say is safer this year, uh, but, but just the, the overall ability of players at other positions is so much greater, but it'll be interesting to see if the scarcity of this group, uh, if you're, you're starting to talk about offensive tackle three with maybe someone like Roderick Johnson from Florida state or Antonio Garcia, um, I, I would say I would certainly much rather have Garcia than, than Roderick Johnson, whose technique is just a hot mess. Uh, <laughs> there's not a lot there as far as depth. So it will be interesting to see if teams allow the scarcity to dictate their boards. Well, and the other player that we haven't talked about yet that I think uh, is going to be in that mix to be one of the first tackles off the board is Garrett Bowles from Utah. Uh, a little overaged. I believe he's going to be a 24, 25-year-old rookie. Uh, kind of yep. a troubled youth, but by all accounts, he's turned his life around. Uh, not a lot of experience against big-time competition, but performed really well this past year. Um, I guess I gave Bowles a slight edge over Ramchek just because I think he might be a little better athlete and athlete might have a little better chance to stay on the left side. Uh, and the other thing with Ramchek, too, uh, I, I want to get your thoughts on Bowles, but uh, maybe you can, just before we uh, go on to Bowles, talk about Ramchek. Are you concerned at all about he's a guy who early on in his college career wasn't sure if he was going to pursue football, didn't really have a direction. Any concern about his commitment, desire? Is that something you'd be searching into? Or uh, uh, is, is, would that be a red flag for you with Ramchek? Since he hasn't been a guy who's been dedicated to football his entire life, uh, uh, is that a concern at all for you with Ramchek? And then what are your thoughts on Bowles? Oh, absolutely. You see the, the, the players that have become much more self-aware of uh, the long-term impact of playing the game on their health. And someone like Chris Borland from San Francisco who came in for a year and, and lit the league on fire for 10 games and then called it quits. Um, that, that's a nightmare scenario for anybody because when you're first and second round picks, you're anticipating getting – two contracts out of a player like that. You're expecting to get eight to 10 years. Uh, so uh, certainly would be a concern for me. And you need to, the teams need to make sure they vet Ramchek fairly extensively and make sure he is committed and he enjoys uh, the game and, and sees himself doing it in the long term. In regards to Bowles, Bowles is, is funny for me because this is a, a style of player that traditionally I have gravitated towards uh, very, very, uh, significantly. I, I've always been attracted to the athletic movers and, and the guys that can mirror in space with the, the tight end style frames. They don't carry all the extra weight. And, and Bowles has that. And he's got some pretty violent hands too. He's got nice pop when he's able to, to get everything lined up. But I've been kind of burned by some of these offensive tackles in the past. I've had names like uh, 
Jake Fisher near the top of my offensive tackle class. And, and the, the jury is still out on a player like that. But you know the NFL does not value that style of player the way that I have coveted them historically in the past. So uh, if it bowls for me, he spins off the blocks a little too frequently for my liking uh, just because of how athletic he is. It, it, it takes away from his natural anchor sometimes. And when he tries to run the feet and compensate, you'll see uh, his, his base gets very narrow and he allows defenders to slip off the blocks and, and not sustain his balance. So that's something for me to, to watch and continue to dig into and, and just make sure I feel really confident about that deduction on his film because, uh, as you said, the movement skills are there. Uh, the ability to play with length is there. He's got good pop in his hand, so he checks a good amount of boxes. It's just where's his baseline level of functional strength, and does he feel like he has to compensate in order to generate movement or get control of blocks sometimes? Yeah, and one thing I like about Bulls, too, is he does play with a bit of a mean streak, and that's something I like in the yeah. offensive lineman. I want them to play with that edge. I think Bulls definitely flashes that. Uh, I believe it's your turn to bring up a topic. Who else do you want to talk about? Uh, I think this safety class deserves some, some recognition as well. I know yeah. we, we mentioned that early on, but names like Baker and Jamal Adams uh, have this as the deepest safety class I can remember in quite some time. Um, when a name like Eddie Jackson isn't even getting talked about anymore because he broke yeah. his leg and has become a total afterthought in which coming into the year, I thought he had potential to be a first-round draft selection. Um, Jamal Adams is special. He is one of the best five film assessments I have given out in the past five years. Uh, he checks almost every box that you want. Uh, his, his open field space and range and ability to overlap his zone to his teammates, to drop down in the box and make tackles in the alley, uh, his nose for the football and football intelligence and processing speed, it is all there. So he, he is absolutely one of my favorite prospects in this draft. Uh, I would not be surprised to see him go in the top five because he is a special, special football player. Well, and you hear him get compared to a guy like Eric Berry, who went in the top five overall. And, and in addition to impressive play on the field, by all accounts, Jamal Adams gets really high marks for his intangibles, his leadership ability. Uh, you mentioned the instincts in the secondary. So, and, and that's going to be one of the debates. Obviously, Jamal Adams is going to be in that mix to be the safety one. But then uh, Malik Hooker from Ohio State and Jabril Peppers from Michigan are the two other guys that are most often in that discussion. And, and I've kind of framed it as – Jabril Peppers is more of that safety linebacker hybrid that you want to come down and play in the box, maybe. Malik Hooker is more of that center fielder, the rangy playmaker, whereas Jamal Adams is maybe the, the compromise, the best combination of the two. Maybe not such an extreme in one way or the other, but the most well-rounded. Um, do you tend to agree with that assessment? And Who do you think is number two? Obviously, you're a huge fan of Jamal Adams. Uh, who do you have number two? Because I, especially when it comes to Peppers, I think he's going to be one of the most polarizing prospects in this class and maybe one of the more polarizing prospects we've seen in the last two or three years. Yeah, you totally stole my thunder because I was getting ready to say if you take Hooker and Peppers and put them together, you have Jamal Adams. Yeah. Um, Pep, I, I think Peppers is going to be a, a frustrating evaluation for a lot of people because it's not a cut-and-dry assessment. You have to project quite a bit of what you're seeing in the role that he's been asked to play and, and project it forward into a role in which 
an offensive or a defensive coordinator may have to uh, move him around. You know, and Hooker's very easy with his projection. If you put him in free safety, you let him play the deep middle of the field and let him impact plays in the deep portions of the field, sideline to sideline, because he's one of the few players that has that kind of range. Or you play him in the shallows as a robber and let his uh, anticipatory skills and his ability to process route combinations in the middle of the field allow him to buzz down and attack throws in the middle of the field. He does that extremely well. Uh, I, I get really discouraged by just how selective uh, Hooker is with his hitting. I don't want to say he can't hit or he can't tackle because if he knows that, a, that an offensive player does not know that he's coming, if his eyes are back to the quarterback or his eyes are back receiving the football, he will lay the wood and he runs through guys. But he's very much a pile inspector when it comes to playing the run, walking up into the box, and just making sure nobody pops out of the back end of the pile. Um, whereas Peppers plays with this reckless abandon and, and loves the contact, thrives on the contact. And I think Peppers um, is, is almost what we tried to box Carl Joseph into be a couple of years ago. When Carl Joseph was a junior and everybody said, oh, you know, he can't play free safety because West Virginia didn't play him at free safety. And then uh, it's difficult to catch in the all 20 or without the all 22 when when Joseph is playing 15 to 20 yards off the ball at the snap and is impacting play sideline to sideline on vertical throws. Uh, It's one of those things where that that transition and uh, projection is not cut and dry. So, I like Peppers for the fact that he hits, he's a box safety, and I'm okay with him being a box safety because I think he can play some defense against tight ends uh, and defend in the middle of the field. But when his eyes are in the backfield, he is absolutely at his best. Uh, Whereas Hooker, you need premium on turnovers, understanding that he may miss some tackles and concede some extra yards and some chunk plays. That's a chocolate versus vanilla type of debate. All right, we're going to take one more quick break, and we're going to come back, and we're going to talk about some quarterbacks. So stay tuned. All right, we're back with Kyle Krabs of NDT Scouting, and we are talking underclassmen that declared for the 2017 NFL Draft. And, and Kyle, we made it 45 minutes in, and we haven't talked about the quarterbacks yet, so I I think it's definitely time to talk about these, uh, these signal callers because... Uh, I think there's a good chance that at least the first two, maybe in the top three quarterbacks selected, are going to come from the underclassmen class, maybe even more. Um, so, of course, I, I think the, the big discussion at the top is going to be Mitch Trubisky from North Carolina, Deshaun Kaiser from Notre Dame, Deshaun Watson from Clemson. So, uh, personally for me, I went Kaiser 1, Trubisky 2, Watson 3, and and a little bit of a drop-off after Kaiser and Trubisky to Watson. Uh, I think Watson's in maybe a, a separate tier. Uh, so the debate for me for QB1 is Kaiser, Trubisky. And um, it seems like the majority at this point seem to be leaning Trubisky. Uh, which way do you have him right now, and what are your thoughts on the top quarterback? Yeah, this, this draft game is weird, man. I got him, I got him uh, Trubisky and Watson with Kaiser 3. So uh, we, we're going to have to iron that out, Scott. Let's do and, it. Uh, figure out which one of us is wrong. Well, um, let's do it. Let's start Trubisky. with Trubisky. What, what, what's yeah, your Trub- assessment? 
Trubisky, for me, I'm really impressed with the fact that this is a one-year starter and some of the poise and control of the game that he had really stood out. You watched the Pittsburgh game, the Florida State game, two games in which they were losing. He engineered fourth-quarter comebacks. Uh, they were down 13 points to Pittsburgh with four and a half minutes left in the game, and he led two touchdown drives, uh, converted four fourth-down passes for first downs on the final drive of that game. Things like that as a first-year starter help me feel better about the fact that he's a first-year starter. Uh, as far as what his negatives are, a lot of them strike me as he will occasionally get wires crossed from pre-snap look to post-snap action. He can get baited sometimes. Uh, it takes things for granted. Uh, and that sort of thing I feel okay about as a first-year starter. You're going to have to learn these sorts of things on the job. Uh, and then the other thing with him is he's still learning what he can and can't get away with when he just has to use his arm to make some plays. You saw uh, that last interception against Duke is a great example of, of not having the space to step into his throw, and he tries to arm it, and the pass fails, and lo and behold, there you go, interception at the game. Um, I think as far as the polish that he has with timing, I was really impressed the rapport he was able to build uh, with his receivers to throw with timing while receivers still have their backs turned to the quarterback and their breaks. Um, very notable, some of the throws, they're, they're drops with timing, and when the back foot hits the ground, the ball is out. It doesn't happen all the time, but you saw it much more frequently than I think I saw it in Kaiser or Watson. So uh, those sorts of things stand out to me, and then the arm ability to throw deep and throw his velocity when he's striding into his throws. His mechanics are still a little wishy-washy sometimes, but when it's all right, he really gets into throws, and he could put some nice dip on the ball in all levels of the field. Well, and, and when I was watching Trubisky, the name that kept coming to mind for me was Blake Bortles, in, in that I, I recognized something similar from when I was valuing Bortles, and that the accuracy was just a bit off. And, and I remember watching Bortles and thinking, he's going to get one of these receivers killed because he put him in a lot of bad positions. And uh, like Bortles, I think Trubisky has all the physical tools to be a, a good starting quarterback at the next level. I think he's just probably a year away, so I, I think the, the, the risk factor with him is a little higher than normal. Obviously, only one year as a starter. I gave Kaiser the edge just because I think he's maybe a, he's a little bigger, maybe a little better athlete. He has twice as much experience, only two years as a starter, but it's still twice as much as Trubisky. But uh, I think it's a 1A, 1B type of situation between those two. I think you can make an argument for either. But I think Watson is where we're going to differ, differ the most, it sounds like. And Watson, you can't say enough about what he did as a college prospect. He was incredible, but especially if you watch the national championship game, the, the amount of punishment he takes as a player, I just keep thinking Robert Griffin III because he's not going to hold up physically in the NFL with his current style of play. He's going to have to be much more cautious with his body, and it's not like he's 240 pounds where he can withstand this punishment. He's got kind of a slight frame, average overall size and bulk, so that's my biggest concern with Watson. Why do you uh, just have him higher than I do? What What do you like about him? What makes the counter argument? Yeah. Um, I, first of all, I think that's a very valid point. Is he plays with that reckless abandon, knows, um, especially in that national championship game, put it all on the line, and that, that big hit for Ruben Foster was an ugly, ugly stick. So he can't take those as a franchise quarterback. Uh, Watson, just to get his cons out of the way for me, uh, the throws he missed last year were the same throws he missed this year. Uh, there are some throws in the intermediate areas of the field, the deep areas of the field, where um, 
balls are just a touch off, and, and that's frustrating. Uh, for some of those throws that are there, but you got to throw them with touch and, and loft and, and allow the, the ball to drop into your receivers. Uh, kind of like what you've seen quite a bit from uh, Ryan Tannehill in his career with the Dolphins. It, it, vertical passing has never been a strength. He just struggles to find the trajectory based on the receiver he throws the ball to. Uh, and then the other thing with Watson is his underneath areas of the field uh, – he will miss some zone defenders in space. He has for a while, and uh, that Pittsburgh game is a perfect example of, of him getting things mixed up uh, with boundary looks versus what's going on in the middle of the field. Uh, the upside with him for me is I think he, when, he is a, when he is in a rhythm and he's buzzing the ball cleanly and he's able to see the field, there is no throw in the world he cannot make. And you can say that for all three of these guys. Um, mm-hmm. Watson, his ability to play as a runner is a great plus. Um, I think when he's able to get the ball out quickly, he's at his best. So if you're looking for a West Coast style of passer, I think Watson is the most qualified of the group. I think Kaiser and Trubisky offer uh, some better traits for more vertical style of passing. Uh, But I'm trying to look at it from the scope of as a West Coast uh, short area game, um, allow him to influence the box with his running ability uh, to keep the, the front seven spaced. Uh, that's where I like him at his best, so that's where I'm trying to evaluate him. And I try to do that with everybody. It, it's try to see, okay, where is he best, and let's evaluate him in regards to that style of game. Well, and then the $64,000 question with these top quarterbacks is, is where do you value them range-wise? And for me, I, I think I'm going to have Kaiser and Trubisky, similar to where I had uh, the top quarterbacks last year, maybe just outside the top 10, but I wouldn't have any trouble with the team in the top 10 in need of a quarterback take, taking a chance on Kaiser and Trubisky, even if it would be a little bit of a slight reach, whereas Watson, I see him more of the late first-rounder. Uh, where do you see those top guys value-wise? Yeah, I think you're you're right on target there as far as if you need one in the top ten and you're convinced he's your guy, go get him, right? Uh, like that's always been the general rule of thumb because if you don't have a quarterback, you're not going to win. The ways you yeah. win in the NFL is have a quarterback, protect the quarterback, and attack the other quarterback. So uh, if, if you don't have one, that first building block is not there. So if you're in the top ten, you need one, uh, by all means, go get one. Um but uh, as far as the round range, I think my top quarterback last year, uh, my top quarterback was Jared Goff. I believe I had him 10th overall, and then Carson Wentz I had 13th. So I think that same value range-wise is going to be realistic, maybe just a little bit lower just because of how much top-end talent there is this year. And I would not be surprised if uh, Deshaun Watson gets the Teddy Bridgewater treatment this year. And you yep. see him really start to slide into the 20s. And I think a perfect fit for him um, as far as the personnel that they have, maybe not necessarily his optimal uh, system for him to land in, would be someone like Houston, where Houston's got DeAndre Hopkins, who with his catch radius and, and his ability to win contested catches can blanket some of those uh, less than optimal place throws in both the deep and, and middle portions of the field. Uh, they, they've got a burner there in Will Fuller, much like Artavis Scott. Uh, I think Braxton Miller has a great potential to develop into 
a Hunter Renfro NFL style receiver where he, he's very effective working the slot and getting open. Uh, so I think if you're looking for parallels with the personnel, uh, Houston would be an excellent fit, and they certainly need a quarterback. We know that now. Yeah, and the other thing I think of with Watson is, like Bridgewater, I could see somebody trading up from the top of round two if they don't get a quarterback with their first pick, coming back up to get uh, Watson late round one because then they get him on the extra year of the rookie contract as well, which is uh, a quite a valuable asset. Uh, before we move on from the quarterbacks, one more player I just want to get your thoughts on is Pat Mahomes from Texas Tech because I think he's going to be a really controversial guy. One of the the more fun and difficult prospects probably in this draft to evaluate, maybe at any position. Uh, so I, I'm interested to see what you make of Pat Mahomes. Yeah, Mahomes is like a combination of like Brett Favre and Johnny Manziel. <laughs> He's <laughs> a crazy watch. Um, the issues I have with Mahomes, I, I like Mahomes. Let me get that out of the way. I think his yeah. arm talent, his overall natural arm ability is probably the best in the class. Uh, he he's not afraid of trying any throw, uh, but he's at his best when the offense gets off structure or off the rails or when his first read immediately after the snap is open. Uh, he has a, a touchdown to check count style of mentality with how he likes to pass the ball. He loves to extend plays and let it rip deep. If it's not there, uh, that check down comes down late. Uh, which a lot of times allows defenders in zone coverage to suck back down onto that check down and, and mitigate those, those games and those type of reps. Uh, where he needs to improve, in my eyes, uh, is the timing portion. When he throws outside the numbers, uh, you see a lot of throws in which it's very um, errant. You know, the placement might not be right. And it's because when he gets the snap out of the gun, uh, a lot of times he just takes these flat footed reads and, it, and, the, the purpose behind the drops versus the route combinations is so that your back foot hits the ground so that the ball can come out as the receiver's coming out of their breaks, and he doesn't do that a whole lot. And, and that is a fundamental baseline necessity at the NFL level. He cannot win with the consistent hold the ball, pat the ball, throw the ball deep after rolling around a little bit. Uh, so if you can – I don't want to say tame him because I don't think you're ever going to totally change his style of play. But if you can get him on some semblance of timing-oriented passing, he can be very effective and very good. He's kind of a lottery ticket with this quarterback class, yeah. I think, beyond the first round where it could work out really well. It could turn out really bad. It's a high risk, high reward. Uh, we're going to start to wind down here, but uh, – before we go on to the, the, the countdown at the end of the show, is there anybody from this underclassman class that we haven't talked about that you want to highlight, bring up, talk about? I want to give love to one guy, and I'm sure we're going to touch on him in the, uh, the countdown here. Uh, Carlos Henderson from La Tech uh, reminds me a lot of, as far as his strengths and weaknesses and style of play, as a cheaper version of Corey Cole. Uh, I was pretty lukewarm on Corey Coleman because we were talking about him as a top 20 selection. And I thought Coleman required quite a bit of polish added to his game. So I, I was not a fan of that investment that early on. Uh, but Henderson's getting talked about as a late day two, early day three style of player. And I could very much get on board with that because he is explosive. Uh, he is a very creative runner. He's effective in the uh, short game and the vertical game. He separates very easily. Uh, has good concentration. He doesn't have great length and doesn't play with a lot of great size, 
Uh, but his ability to play tough at the catch point, I think, is underrated. He brings quite a bit to the table for a team that needs some splash play. And what type of role? Do you envision him as a starter? Do you see him as more of a slot guy at the next level? What, what's his upside, I guess? What's the best-case scenario for Carlos Henderson? I, I think his upside is, is your vertical receiver. So if you're looking, if you're a style of offense like Washington uh, that, that loves to, to throw those deep shots, you know, they have guys like, uh, Deshaun Jackson obviously is a burner, uh, but even Jamison Crowder, who is not necessarily a, a big-time burner, uh, but gets a lot of targets down the field. I think he has some nice nuance to his vertical receiving and how he attacks off coverage. And uh, I, I could see him uh, in a vertical style being a starter. He may be a wide receiver three for some other teams, but just that player that's really going to keep and prevent the defense from sucking down and getting that extra defender consistently in the box. Well, for the player that I'm going to bring up, the last one is Malik McDowell, the defensive lineman for Michigan State. Uh, I think his best position is going to be as a defensive tackle, but he's shown the ability to maybe slim down, play a little defensive end as well. But I- I'm not overly impressed with this defensive tackle class as a whole, whether you're talking seniors, underclassmen, etc. cetera. Uh, and-, and McDowell, He's going to be a boomer bust type of prospect. I think he's got legitimate top 10 overall type of talent. You just haven't gotten that production out of him consistently to this point in his career. I still have a first-round grade on Malik McDowell, probably top 15 to 20 overall. I just believe in his talent, and especially considering the dearth of, I guess, other options that I like at that position. So I guess I'm interested to hear where you come down on Malik McDowell. And I guess I consider Jonathan Allen a defensive tackle. Uh, so Malik McDowell is my number two defensive tackle. Is that who you have as well, or did you go with someone else? Uh, yeah, McDowell I have just a little bit lower as far as uh, he's in that 25 to 40 range for me is probably where he's going to end up. He's got nice versatility. Uh, very much a penetration style of player. Uh, point of attack work is not his best. He's, he's very much effective when he's hit the hip and, and able to occupy gaps early and then sit down and redirect and find the football from there. Uh, I do like that he has the versatility to kick outside and uh, beat some offensive tackles. Uh, the question for me is if you're consistently playing him on the interior, uh, he needs to shore up uh, attack, getting into some run fits and attacking the line of scrimmage uh, with a good, strong base as compared to always flowing forward. Uh, and if you're going to work him on the boundary, then he's not, he just doesn't have that level of fluidity to him uh, to win around the edge consistently. So he's kind of a tweener for me, which is why he's a little bit lower for me. Uh, but if you get an all, again, if you, if, a lot of these players come down to if you get a defensive coordinator that feels comfortable moving a player around, that's optimal. You can get him the best of both worlds there. Uh, my number two right now, if we're including John Allen, is probably going to be Caleb Brantley uh, from Florida, a bowling ball style player. It's between him and Jaleel Johnson uh, from Iowa. Those two guys are, are very similarly built. Uh, they win similar ways in that they, they're physically stout. They, they are gap penetrators. Uh, they both might not have ideal amounts of length, uh, but when they are on, they shed gaps in the inside very effectively. Uh, they, they do not bring the outside rush versatility of Malik McDowell, uh, but, but they are very effective at the point of attack. 
All right, let's go into the countdown. As we do at the end of every episode, we're going to do a top five countdown. I've got five questions. Kyle and I are both going to answer them. So starting off at number five, Kyle, which underclassmen that came out early left the most money on the table, do you think, compared to where they could have been selected with another year in college? And for me, I went with Noah Brown, the wide receiver from Ohio State. Uh, a surprise early entry came out as a redshirt sophomore. And, of course, the Buckeyes were once again decimated by underclassmen leaving to the pros. And I just think if Noah Brown had gone back and been that feature target, for the Buckeyes next year, I think he could have gone much earlier than he's going to this year. So he's the one that really kind of stands out for me, and, and really it wasn't even close. He's, it, was, it was him by a pretty wide margin. Is there somebody else that stands out for you that you thought maybe left some money on the table? Yeah, I think Brown's a great choice. I was surprised to hear he made the decision to come out. Um, some of these running backs you can make an argument as well, just because of how deep the class is. Next year's going to be a strong group, too. Um, and I understand why, why names like Alvin Kamara uh, decided to come out because, you know, at Tennessee, obviously things were not clicking. We were not on all cylinders when he's only getting 143 touches uh, with his skill set. Um, so, so getting away from that kind of scenario, I can understand. But, but some of these running backs as well, uh, uh, Joe Yearby, a name that I mentioned, is, is another one where the situation kind of forced his hand. Joe Mixon, the situation forced his hand. The Joe Mixon decision really struck me as a Joe, either go to the draft or you're going to be dismissed from the team because of the backlash they were getting in Oklahoma for the decision to, yeah. to allow him to play for two years after that. Uh, so I, I guess uh, I think that Brown fit is a good one, but um, I, I think uh, the, some of these running backs could have made a better decision to come back to school and uh, to play another year especially considering the landscape when we saw so many of them coming out. Uh, I, I, I agree. I think there were some opportunity for some of these guys to, to go back uh, running back. Let's go to number four, which underclassman that's expected to go in round are you in round one? Are you most skeptical or leery of? And for me, I had a little trouble with this one. I went with Caleb Brantley. It's not that I don't like him. It's just that I, I question whether he's getting pushed up a little bit because there aren't a lot of really exciting options at defensive tackle this year. Uh, especially if you get past John Allen. Um, uh, even I, I'm not his biggest fan, but I still have him as my number three defensive tackle. I just question whether he's going to get pushed up and come off the board maybe a half a round earlier than he normally would have just because teams are, are trying to find solutions at defensive tackle. So, uh, so who was your pick for who's gonna, who you're skeptical of going to go in round one amongst the underclassmen? Sure. Uh, I, I came up with two uh, big, big school kids. Uh, Cam Robinson being one just because of the red tape off the field. Uh, when you're described by NFL decision makers as high maintenance, uh, mm-hmm. that's a little worrisome. Uh, um, so, so I'm leery of oh, the, the off the field issues there and his ability to keep his nose clean. Uh, the other one that, that really struck me was Raquan McMillan from Ohio State. Uh, I think McMillan, if he ends up getting taken in the first round, I don't think he's as scheme diverse. Uh, I think systemically this is a 3-4 inside linebacker. I don't see the range. Uh, he's very effective playing forward, and when he's able to attack gaps and work into the line of scrimmage, he's, he is at his best. But uh, the, the case for me with him is I think it would be interesting if a player like this went to a smaller profile school than Ohio State. Mm-hmm. what the consensus would be on him. He really strikes me as somebody who, because he's a inside linebacker, which is a position that's around the ball quite a bit at a high-profile school, uh, 
he garners a lot of attention where, uh, for me, I, I think he's much more of a, a strong gap plugger in, in a 3-4 style of defense, but I don't see the range that I really like to see in an inside linebacker. Yeah, and I agree. Not a lot of versatility there with McMillan, and uh, I think he's going to kind of suffer from the same thing that Reggie Raglan did, just because he's kind of pigeonholed into a specific type of role and doesn't offer you a lot of versatility. He might slide a little bit. All right, number three in the countdown. Which non-first-round underclassman has the most star potential if every, everything clicks? And, and I went with two guys here. I went with one on offense and one on defense. On offense, I went with Derek Griffin, uh, the tight end out of uh, or the, the tight end wide receiver out of Texas Southern. Uh, and those for those who aren't familiar with the story, he was a, a very highly targeted recruit coming out of high school. Uh, tried to go to Texas A&M and Miami, but had academic issues. Wound up at a prep school. Basically played one full year at Texas Southern uh, and, and scored 11 touchdowns. Proved to be a real dynamic threat in the red zone. Terrific athlete. He's also a basketball player. He played uh, basketball for Texas Southern as well and averaged a double-double. He was the, the slack defensive player of the year. And, and some off-the-field concerns there, small school, lots of issues, which is why he's going to be a late-round pick, maybe even a priority free agent. But he, even in this strong tight end class, I just think he's going to offer such upside on day three compared to the other options available. And then on defense, I went with Al-Kadeen Muhammad from formerly a uh, defensive end outside uh, linebacker of Miami. Um, he's a guy I, I've been keeping my eye on for a while. Ever since back in high school, I remember seeing clips of him and, and being impressed. And early on in his career at Miami, just really impressed with that burst off the edge. And I just don't think you find pass rushers with his kind of uh, juice on day three of the draft very often. He's got some off-field concerns. He got kicked out of Miami. There was talk that he was going to transfer to Hampton and play there. I was keeping an eye on him all this year, waiting to see uh, if he popped up, but he didn't. Uh, wound up entering the draft instead. I just think Al-Kadeem Muhammad's pass rush potential on day three is going to be, I don't want to say leaps and bounds, but significantly higher than what you'd normally find in that range. So, so those are my two players uh, beyond the first round. Uh, who are your picks? And it sounds like you like Muhammad, too. Yeah, you stole my thunder there a little bit. Muhammad, you know, you go back and watch uh, Miami-Florida State 2015, and the first quarter of that game, he was everywhere. He dominated the early portions of that game. Um, he's still trying to put it all together as far as how when he's engaged, uh, getting off of blocks, but the, the overall movement skills with the build that he has, his athletic size profile is really, really impressive. So that's certainly one uh, that came to mind. And the other one that I want to mention uh, is actually going to be in the senior bowl, as, but it was a player that had an extra year of eligibility. And that's Alex Anzalone from Florida. Uh, Anzalone, he's been on my radar since high school. Uh, he went to the uh, Crosstown High School from where I attended high school in central Pennsylvania and uh, was an absolute stud for the high school football team, led him to a state championship. Uh, but he's had shoulder issues for several years now and the shoulder issues have, have been a big block for him uh, to be able to take the next step. And this year you saw some glimpses of what he can be when he stays on the field. Uh, Anzalone moves the way you want an NFL linebacker to move, very fluid. Uh, he's effective with his burst when he's attacking off the second level. Uh, he misses some tackles, but he also challenges some plays you wouldn't expect most linebackers to be able to with his movement skills. So, uh, that's a name that if he can finally stay healthy and get a considerable amount of reps under his belt, it is a name that could develop into a very solid NFL linebacker. 
All right, number two on the countdown. Which underclassman would you make a stand for if you were a scout in a war room on draft day? And for me, it's a guy we talked about earlier, and I'm going to go with Cam Robinson. And this is another player that I've, I've been a fan of for quite a while. I remember watching him as a true freshman while I was watching other Alabama prospects, and he kept jumping out to me. He kept flashing. Uh, now, I don't think he's Orlando Pace. He's not that type of player, but I think he has a high floor. Uh, he can play left or right tackle. I think he's got enough to stay on the left side. There's some who think he's going to go to the right side, but battle-tested to the nth degree, not only in the SEC, but in his own, very own practices going against uh, the Jonathan Allens of the world and the Tim uh, Williams of the world and the Ryan Andersons. I just think there's very little chance that Cam Robinson's not going to be at least a very good offensive tackle at the next level. And, and honestly, I wouldn't have a problem with taking him in the top ten overall. I'm that big a fan of him. So I, I would definitely stand on the table and, and make a case for Cam Robinson. Uh, how about you? Who's your guy? Uh, two guys we've talked about, uh, David Njoku being one. Uh, just a pup. You, know, you mentioned that this is a redshirt sophomore uh, from the Jersey area came all the way down to Miami and has really blossomed. The last 10 games that he played, seemed like the light really came on for him. So I think you're just seeing him begin to scratch the surface of what he does well. He can still continue to get better at route, uh, route running by using his size uh, to establish some more separation. But he checks every single box as a receiver. He's going to be a big play player. I know you mentioned he averaged over 16 yards to catch over the course of his two-year career. Uh, the other one being Sidney Jones, the corner, for the simple reason that I don't care what style of defense you're playing. I don't care if you fire defensive coordinator or bring somebody in that needs, quote-unquote, his guys to be able to run his system. He fits any system because of the versatility that he has as an athlete to play with length, with physicality, with quickness in short areas, playing off the ball, on the ball, on the line of scrimmage. Uh, just overall, the, the multiplicity of him as a player and, and the scheme that you can slot him in makes him a very attractive player to me. All right, last one, number one on the countdown. And since we're draft next, it's never too early to look ahead. So which underclassmen that stayed in school are you most excited for for the 2018 NFL draft? And, and for me, I guess I looked at this from the perspective of who would have been the highest-rated player at his position had he come out this year for me. And, and, and I settled on Quentin Nelson, the offensive guard from Notre Dame. And, and I, I'm a big fan of Dan Feeney from Indiana, who's a senior. But if Nelson had come out, I think Nelson would have been right there battling to be the first guard off the board. Uh, went back to school, which I think was the right decision. He was only a redshirt sophomore. He's certainly going to benefit from another year of uh, development, both physically and, and, uh, and mentally. But and, and his draft range is going to be limited to a certain degree by the position he plays. Offensive guard is in a premium position. And, uh, but I think if he had come out this year as a redshirt sophomore as an offensive guard, he would have been in that late first-round consideration, which is pretty rarefied error for a true offensive guard. So I'm going to throw out Quentin Nelson as the guy I'm, I'm eager to take a look at for next year. Yeah, and, you know, the, the left tackle there, McGlinchey, was another one yep. that I was surprised came back. Um, had very good standing. Uh, I know he struggled a bit this year as he transitioned uh, to the opposite side of the line of scrimmage, but the film that he had out was very strong. But the name that I really that immediately came to my mind was Gerard Evans, the quarterback from Virginia Tech. Uh, Evans went to the Air Force Academy for a year, got hurt, transferred to a small school, and then transferred back to Virginia Tech, started one year, and oops, there he goes, he's gone. So uh, Evans had a really nice year. Uh, he reminds me, uh, with his strengths and weaknesses, somewhat of Brent Hundley coming out of UCLA. Um, mm-hmm. And I would have loved to see him get a second year of, of experience as a starter um, 
where things were a little less um, relied on receivers to make a play. Isaiah Ford and Bucky Hodges made a lot of contested catches down the field, back shoulder throws, uh, just to add some, some versatility to the throws that he hit with consistency. Uh, but, but the physical skill set that he brings, the arm ability that he has, uh, has the makings to be a very good quarterback. It's just I think he jumped a year too soon. All right, before we uh, end this, I want to give you a chance to let everybody know where they can read your stuff, where they can buy the prospectus, where they can follow you. Yeah, you can visit uh, NDTscouting.com to keep track of all of the latest happenings with my work. Um, I'm going to actually be starting to implement some, some written materials there on a weekly basis, so we're, we're going to be rolling out some uh, red carpet for the website in the near future, which I'm really excited about. Uh, some other things coming down the pipe. I'm not quite ready to share yet, but be sure to swing by NBT Scouting uh, as often as you would like. You are more than welcome. You can visit me on Twitter. I am at NBT Scouting. Uh, very active, very much enjoy the uh, interaction with, with draft fans all across the world. So, uh, Scott, thank you very much for having me. This is a great time, man. Thank you so much for the time, and I highly recommend checking out Kyle's stuff. He, he, as you can tell from the last hour and 15 minutes we've been discussing, he knows his stuff. Uh, uh, and thank you so much for the time, Kyle. We'll talk to you again soon. All right. Sounds great. And with that, we're going to call it a show. But as always, there are 95 days, 6 hours, 43 minutes, and 33 seconds left until the 2017 NFL Draft. Tick-tock.